that's a product of our society, right? That we always have to be producing. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what you produce. What you produce is very small in comparison to the act of doing the thing that's going to fill your spirit. How does your heart feel when you are singing? How does your heart feel when you are taking a piece of paper to create a collage and you are ripping it and you are angry? It doesn't matter what you create. That product, that end goal, it doesn't matter because that's not the work and that's not what is important. Saludos, this is Christina Rivera, and I'm a minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, hope it builds your faith, and hope it gives you perspective to experience the power of Unitarian Universalism at work in your life. Enjoy the message. Wepa. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Voices of Unitarian Universalism, also known as The VU. I am Aisha Hauser, my pronouns are she and her, and I come to you from Seattle, Washington. I'm Christina Rivera, she, her pronouns. I'm coming to you from beautiful central Virginia. Greetings, beloved. This is Michael Pino coming to you from Peekskill, New York. DC just dropped off. DC is on a train hurtling towards New Orleans, and hopefully he'll be back. Well, until DC is back, I'm going to introduce one of my very favorite people. Uh, I have a lot of favorite people on the show today, everybody. And behind the chalice is Tanner. So thank you for your producing skills. Our guest today is one of our learning fellows, Jacaren Olaoya. She is a lifelong UU poet, writer, mixed media artist, and chaplain to religious professionals. Sure are. She serves the UUA Board of Trustees, the Unitarian Universalist Association Board of Trustees, and has a Master's of Divinity with chaplaincy concentration from Star King School for the Ministry. As an earth-based African spiritualities practitioner with foundations in Christianity, can't wait to learn more about that. She draws from the guidance of her ancestors and spiritual care. Amen and Ashe. Welcome, Jacaren. We are going to have you on for the whole show starting with Roundup, you, you, and the world, and otherwise. So let's uh, jump in there. Welcome, Jacaren. So great to be with you today. Oh, I love it. My favorite people in one place. <laughs> and where are you coming to us from, Jacaren? So I am in Macon, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. Excellent. And it looks like from the train, DC is about DC. Hello. I'm glad to be here. What are we doing? What are we talking about? The five of us are going to do UU Roundup, World Roundup. There was an election. The world's a clusterfuck. And we are loving being together in community because joy is an act of resistance. And we need to fill our own cups in order to navigate the clusterfuck Mm -hmm. that is the modern world. So with that, Side with Love on Monday hosted a, I'm going to have to look up the name, a program that had many guests from Palestine, Israel, um, people in the United States who are American Jews, Muslims, about how to talk about what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, And it was, I found, very, very powerful. I didn't know what to expect. And it was Unitarian Universalist Association staff that hosted it. And some people thought it wasn't balanced. And here's what I'll say to that. There is a clear genocide happening. And and clearly one uh, side, the government... Uh, of the state of Israel 
has a lot of power and weapons and is utilizing it to crush another group of people. So I'm not sure what other side was supposed to be presented. I have been in the past couple of weeks in conversations about what's going on in the Middle East, where I literally long for the days where people were pissed about the words white supremacy. I'm like, can we go back to just talking about racism? Because that would be <laughs> and, I'm, and it's not even that I'm uncomfortable at all. It's that I don't even know where to go. That's why I'm so happy Ja'Karen's on here. Because what I start saying is, let's talk about humanity. Let's talk about pain. Let's talk about trauma. Because the issues are so deeply embodied in people that there's, there's not even a starting point, it feels like. And so, I think yeah, me to expect balance when there is clearly a power imbalance, that, that that in itself is impossible, right? When there's such a clear power imbalance being out to expect some kind of nuanced or balanced reporting of that or witnessing of that is just not possible. And there's one of the memes going around right now that it was like to expect colonizers to call out other colonizers is probably not <laughs> something that's going to happen. Like that's not going to be the easiest work for us to do. And yet we are still called to do that work, right? If we have a hard time even identifying ourselves in the ways in which we've been colonizers and or colonized, expecting us to do that and recognize that in others. I think that's one of the reasons why there's like such vehement about this, at least in the US, is that it brings up all of those same issues about how the majority of the white folks came to be in the United States in the first place. I literally couldn't say, hey, let's affirm that we need to stop genocide, but let's not make anti-Semitism worse. And that became like controversial. I'm like, damn. <laughs> but Jacaret, I'm going to ask you, you do offer spiritual care to religious professionals. And what, what are some of the things that you think we can go to to resource ourselves based on the beautiful work you do? Yeah. So I'll say this first. So I've been reading Repentance and Repair by... Rabbi Danya Gutenberg, is yes. that it? Gutenberg. Gutenberg did the thing with the Bible. So in it, she's talking about how after an atrocity has happened, we can't rush to erase it, to pretend like it didn't happen. We can't rush to try to like fix it and make things better. We have to feel what we're feeling. We have to go through this process of healing. And that requires us to like be in the moment, to do the thing. And so in thinking about resourcing, I think it's important now for people to start thinking about the, the other side of this. Once we get to a place of peace, a place of ceasefire, a place of repair and healing, but we have to think about the fact that we're also going to be carrying anger and we're going to be carrying hurt and pain and trauma in the process. And so we can't wait until we get to that end point to start thinking about what that looks like. So now is the time to think about, okay, what are my spiritual practices? What helps me to feel good? What kind of care do I need through all of this? And it's going to be especially important for religious professionals because we then have to turn around and help other people do that same work right? So it's important for us to start now. A lot of my work is in retreats and workshops, getting people to use art 
as a means of spiritual practice, finding something that speaks to you. And we can't wait until we're in the midst of the trauma to develop that. We want it to be something that we can pick up when we need it, not look for it when we need it. And so I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. They're just like, oh, like everything's on fire and I don't know what to do. And it can be everything's on fire and I really need to do art because that's going to keep me sane in the moment. Right. That's the difference, I think. I think about trauma and I think about how people respond to trauma. And when people are in their trauma place, they're in their amygdala, which is like here, right? It's in the back of the brain. And when they're there, there's no possibility of rational conversation. And I think something that we're seeing right now in the world is that you've got two groups that are both in that amygdala place. We've got a Jewish population that was attempted to have been wiped off the map, and they've got generational trauma, which is biological, okay? And we've got the Palestinian people who are enduring an attempted genocide right now. And honestly, every Muslim person I know does not wish any Jewish person death and destruction. And every Jewish person I know does not wish Muslim people death and destruction. It's the governments of these two places that are having the screaming memes and nobody can get anywhere because everybody's triggered and in their amygdala and are unable to have conversations. And I think about there are phrases that each side uses that the other side will put them in a trauma place right away, right? Like, what is it, from the sea to the ocean or whatever it is, right? That for the Palestinian people is a rallying cry of, we just want to have our place back, right? And for the Jewish people, it lands entirely different. I had a conversation with a Jewish colleague yesterday who was really hurting. And part of it is, and this is an, an awkward and, and imperfect comparison, but we think about the work that we've done around the Confederate flag. And for a while, there were some folks in the South who said, that's about heritage and that's about history and that's about whatever. And our, and our people of color were like, fuck that. That's a sign that I'm going to get killed. And so from the sea to the, I got the words all wrong. I know I do. But that doesn't mean to the Palestinian people what it means to those who are Jewish. For them, it's a trigger. Thank you for that. Karen. I want you to weigh in because within our, the Unitarian Universalist spaces, what I'm finding and what I've tried to communicate is how do we center pastoral care? Because here's the thing. I don't use the words anti-Zionist because the Zionism is deeply personal for so many. So how do we both, I guess, this is a a live question that I've been asking myself and Ja'Karen, what's a ritual, like let's say I'm giving pastoral care to a colleague who is Jewish or or Muslim, where's a pastoral place to start knowing, speaking to the trauma that DC named? I guess I've been asking myself that, where's the starting point? I think that's tough, mostly because I think it's going to just depend, right? Like it's going to depend on where we are and 
also our own confidence in being willing to speak up or say a thing, right? So if you are having these conversations with people individually, it's much easier to be in the moment and say, I hear you and I see you and I honor you, right? Those are really important things to affirm and to um, remind um, other people of. In group settings, it's a little bit different because if you say that, like, oh, well, who are you talking about? Are you talking about my people or those other people, right? This is something that comes up, I think, pretty frequently. And so I think that an important part of the pastoral care that we do in groups is doing lots of framing. It's thinking about, okay, we're in this moment together. We're dealing with this together. We have these different viewpoints, these different trauma points, right? Like this is something we also deal with when two like neurospicy people are in the same space and their things kind of clash with each other, right? How do we deal with that? And so honoring the individual, honoring the person, keeping it out of this macro level and keeping it on a micro level, I think can make all the difference in these uh, group pastoral care positions. And I suspect that's why um, Side with Love did so well in bringing people in who are directly affected and allowing them to talk about their experiences, right? And so it takes it out of this abstract, oh, we're, we're gonna look at this as a whole and okay, I am a person, I'm an individual, and I need to know that my community is with me. And we as a community can be with a Jewish person, with a Muslim person, with all the people, right? Individually, collectively, right? But what we can't do is take that aerial view, that macro view, and put a blanket statement over all of it and think that everyone's going to feel that love and that care and that community support. It has to be... I say one-to-one, -one, but really I mean like as a religious professional out to people, that message that you're putting out um, has to be something that touches that individual. It can't just be a blanket, this is a thing that's going to be okay for everyone. So when you say, okay, we're, we're demanding a ceasefire, well, there are people that, that don't believe that, right? And so they're not going to feel hurt in that moment. But there might be something else you can say. You can say, we honor every single life that has been lost and we pray that no more are lost, right? That's still saying the same thing. It's still saying ceasefire, stop killing each other, right? But, but changing it to make it more personal, I think, can make all the difference for something like that. I know you particularly bring art into that pastoral care. How do you help people figure out what art works for them? Because I, I can't draw to save my life, right? I can draw stick figures and like the little house with the little pitched roof like we did and like a tree and a sun. Those are the full complement of what I can draw. And so whenever I go into a situation where folks are like, oh, we're going to do art for the meditation, or I get almost frozen sometimes oh, no. because I know that there's going to be other people that are going to just draw brilliant things and it's going to look gorgeous and everything. And so how do you, how do you help people find the thing that helps them get into that space? 
Yeah, so Chris, I am here to tell you that your experience is not unique in that many people, and when I say many people, every time I run a workshop or a retreat, there are at least four people just like, oh, I don't do art, or oh, I'm not creative. And I'm just like, oh, you just wait a minute. Because one of the things that I really believe as someone who also does, I don't draw, y'all. Like, I am terrible at drawing, but I'm really good at other things. And so there are two things that I do. The first one is... I like to um, start off these opportunities telling people, this is not a space for perfection. We, there's no right way to do the thing. You just need to do it. It doesn't matter what it's looked like. The art isn't the work. The art is just the medium. It's just the vehicle. You're driving, right? So you're the one that matters in this. And then the second thing is that I try to offer a variety of art activities so I just did a retreat with one of the UUMA chapters. And so we did about six art activities for each day. So it was a two-day retreat. So we did a total of 12 art projects, y'all. And every single one of them was a different form or a format. I love zines because all you need is a one single sheet of paper and a pen, right? And you can make art and you get to do it in lots of different ways. But having a variety, someone's going to find something in that they connect with and someone's going to find something they absolutely hate, right? Like on the feedback form, someone was like, oh, I hated the scrolls. And I was just like, oh, that's so funny because last week someone told me that the scrolls were life-changing for them, right? And so having that variety, making sure that in these spaces that I create that I have a wide variety of mediums available and also uh, low cost, right? Like I want them to be accessible. Most all of the activities you can do with very minimum items. And if you want to get fancier, you can, right? Like if you want to buy the really nice color pencils, you can, or you can use the Crayola or the Dollar Tree, right? It doesn't matter because the product isn't the thing that's on the paper. The product is how you feel after you do it, after you get from here to here and then through your hands and, and do the thing, right? So that's the part that matters, that embodied uh, part of creating art is where the work happens, not a over when you're done. That is super helpful. And thank you for the affirmation that other folks <laughs> feel the same because that definitely helps me. I always know when I go into a space that you're creating that I will be okay. And so that, that makes me feel better. And hopefully people will hear that message as well. I want to take this like specific and maybe try and connect it to something, you know, in my experience as the son of an art teacher, mm. um, a lot of people have been damaged yeah. by people denigrating their abilities, right? Like you can make art. Yes. It might not look like a Van Gogh, right? <laughs> but it's, it shouldn't. It's art. And it, it shouldn't. Even better to care. It's just like people who are like, I can't sing. You can make a joyful noise. And it might not be in tune. Whatever. What even is that? I love music directors that are like, add the second harmony or the third harmony or the one that we haven't discovered yet. Right? <laughs> like you're going to sing something and it's going to be a harmony. It, it might not be 
according to the Western music theory, <laughs> you know, whatever. But I mean, that's a product of our society, right? That we always have to be yes. producing. And the truth of the matter is, yes. it doesn't matter what you produce. What you produce is very small in comparison to the act of doing the thing that's going to pull your spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, how does your heart feel when you are singing? How does your heart feel when you are taking a piece of paper to create a collage and you are ripping it and you are angry, but you are ripping that paper and then you get to take it and you slather on glue and you put it down mm. on the, right? Like, how are you feeling in the moment? It doesn't matter what you create, that product, that end goal. You don't have to sell your art. You don't have to, you can throw it away as soon as you create it. It doesn't matter because that's not the work and that's not what is important. But our society tells us perfection yeah. and product are the priority and they are not. Like I know Chris, and maybe this is letting one of your deep dark secrets out of the bag here on the VU, that you love pretty pens. I know you love pretty pens. So maybe your process of art is how it feels to use your pretty pens. And it doesn't matter what work they are making on the paper. Yes. And that's what I learned from G. Karen. Like I always had this obsession with pretty pens and I always I denied always myself denied pretty pens because I didn't have anything to do with them. Like mm. I couldn't draw anything with them. And so why would I buy them? Right? It didn't make any sense to me you know, this, this idea that I had to create something conventionally beautiful with them in order to deserve them. And now I know I can do whatever I want with the pretty pens and I can use them on things that I throw away or that I write to other people or in place of whatever. And so now I have, you know, at my side, all of the pens that I want to, because if I want to write with a sparkly pen, God damn it, I'm gonna. And the fact that art is more than just pictures, right? You are a phenomenal writer. We know this to be true. You writing on a piece of paper and just doing stream of consciousness, that is art. I fully believe that. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, use the pretty pens. Use that watercolor palette you bought when you were on that trip in Paris and it's so pretty, you don't want to touch it, use it. Because it's going to outlive you. And so you need to have those good experiences, those joyful moments right now. That's when you need that. We always talk about the way that we have to have a rainy day fund, right? Like you shouldn't have that for things that bring you joy. You need Say it. that. You need it now. And here we are in this moment where everything is on fire, right? And everything feels so big. How do we ground ourselves? Well, we ground ourselves by going and taking out that palette. I know you got, there's a book in you. I know there's a book in you. Start writing down some ideas. That is art. That is part of the legacy of the book that you will create, right? Like all of things are so important and we can't keep waiting for another time where things might be worse because here's mm. the thing they're gonna get better because that's life and they are going to get worse but what's gonna carry you from this that this hard moment to the next hard moment and if the in-between is nothing you have nothing to move you forward there's no joy to move you forward to keep going so what's going to get you to that next happy moment 
And it, the process that you are naming takes us out of our minds and it is embodied. So when we're writing stream of consciousness or tearing a piece of paper or painting or expressing ourselves in ways other than trying to find a solution, because I think that's where my suffering and pain point comes in. What do I do? How do I fix this? How do I hold people rather than what am I feeling? What is happening right now to my body? What is coming up for me? And so being in the present. So that's what I appreciate about your work and what you're saying and just letting go of the end result and asking ourselves questions and whatever comes up, expressing that in a way that, that kind of takes away from the um, transaction, even for like for myself, it's a transactional thing. Like I need to find the answer, but do I, how about I feel the pain that I'm feeling and the helplessness and then get that all out in the ways that can bring joy on the way to joy, move through the frustration and get it out of our bodies. Yes. And something you just said. So in that process of creating, that can be healing for someone else. So the book that I carry with me all the time is Spilling the Light by Reverend Julian. And I don't know what their process was. I don't know what they were feeling, but I'm telling you that when I am in a place where I need encouragement, I can pick up that book. And I feel mm. what they have written. And so mm. that process for them might have just been, I just need to get this out of my body, right? Onto the paper. And then for me, as someone who is consuming what they produced becomes, oh, this is a healing bomb for me. My heart feels mm. so much better spending just a moment reading mm. two or three poems from this book. And that's what it is. It's not producing for the sake of producing, but for the sake of connection. How are we? Yes. connecting to other people in our pain, in our helplessness, in our struggle, but also hope and our joy and our love and excitement and passion mm -hmm. and all the things, right? And connecting to ourselves, right? Yes. Yeah. I noticed that my sermon writing is so much better now because I don't type it out anymore. I dictate it and I just open the word doc and it's got the little dictation thing that you can use and i just do the, like you said the stream of consciousness and just like what is it that i'm trying to acknowledge that i'm feeling that other people might be feeling and how do, what do we do with these feelings and what does our faith say about this but before I noticed when I was typing, I would constantly be editing, like as I was typing, because it has to be perfect, right? Like my written form has to be perfect. And, and it would inhibit my train of thought and my train of feeling, right? And so now I can go back to that document after I've gotten it all out and then get it into some semblance of fashion that can be shared. It's so much more freeing to be away from the perfection. I am absolutely with you on the, the written word and the way that I was taught to write in a certain way. Like I've submitted manuscripts before and been asked which copy editor I hired because they didn't need editing because that's the way I was taught to write, right? Exactly. And so I'm writing a sermon, I have to write like that too. So my daughter is now 10 and a half. I reached a point when she was about one where she got sick and whatever. And my first duty was to take care of my sick child, which meant sermon writing went right out the window because she was miserable, right? And I was exhausted. 
because I was a parent of a baby, right? And anyone who's ever parented knows that deep exhaustion, who's ever witnessed parenting, anyone who's ever cared for another being knows that deep exhaustion. And so I wrote down some sketchy notes and I brought it to the pulpit and I preached as if I were dictating a sermon to a computer, but it's like, I just, I said what I had to say. The whole congregation was sitting there the whole time. They were like hanging on every word. And afterwards they're like, did you like take a preaching class while you were away? They were like, wow, I don't know what you did this week, but that was the best sermon you've ever given. And like the content, wow. not the best sermon I've ever given. It but it just, made them feel like it was. I was so present with them because I wasn't staring at these words. I wasn't wrapped up in the perfection of the words right. that I had yeah. created. I was present with them and it wasn't perfect, but it was so present. So I, I will tell you that the last sermon I gave at CLF is this, and, and none of you can read this because it's in my arthritic handwriting. That was the last sermon I gave and it was okay. More than okay. It really was more than okay. Well, I, modest. I'm, I'm fascinated by earth-based African spiritualities with foundations in Christianity. So it has not come up in our casual conversations to Karen. So now I get the opportunity to ask, what is that? And how does that live inside you? And how do you embody that? So thank you for asking about this. I don't get to talk about it nearly as much as I would love to. But I will say that it is very present in the work that I do because I see myself grounded in earth-based practices. I talk to trees. When I need to ground myself, I walk barefoot in the grass. I give thanks to the trees and the wind. I have this really great story. I was at this wild basket weaving class at the height of the pandemic, and we were all outside, and it was a really hot day, and it was just kind of stagnant. And so... I'm talking to these people who I don't know and don't know me. I'm like, God, I wish there was a little bit of wind. And I closed my eyes and I'm sitting there and I said, spirit of the wind, we invite you in. Like something really silly and simple, right? And all of a sudden the wind started blowing and they were all like, everyone stopped what they were doing. They were like, how did you do that? <laughs> I love it. But I think more than anything, it's just, this knowledge that our spirit is not separate from things that are inanimate, right? Like we're not separate from the trees. We're not separate from the bugs. Like that's all part of our spirit. We talk about our ancestors, the people, but that also includes that big old oak tree that died that had been there for 500 years or whatever, right? Like all of those things are part of who we are. So I find that kind of grounding works really well with Unitarian Universalism and mm -hmm. that I get to have kind of this relational piece that I bring with me that comes from my depth of connection to the earth. Mm -hmm. And so I was raised in a Christian household. I'm the fifth minister in my family. The other four are Christian in name and their ministries are there. And I can't erase that, even if my views are either in conflict or not necessarily perfectly aligned, it's still part of who I am. And so I always say that and carry that foundation with me. So I still get to celebrate Christmas, but also I'm more than likely on Christmas Day going to be in a space where I can go 
sit and listen and talk to the trees and mm. think, reflect about what it means to be in community, in a family. I mean, we can get into the whole thing about like when Jesus's birthday actually was, but if we're just looking at this one particular thing, what would it have meant for that family to be together in that moment? And mm-hmm. what would it have meant to have these visitors come from so far to give gifts and, and blessings, right? So it's important to think about all of those things and it doesn't get to be separated. It, it forms the whole of who I am. So I get to bring in some of those pagan practices and um, some practices that are uh, traditionally African. So a lot of the West African traditions are brought in as well, with like speaking over water and doing rituals and honoring the phases of the year and all the things, right? I get to bring all of those things in and use that not only in my personal spiritual practices, but I try to infuse that also in my work with other people. I guess I'm curious about, is there several like texts that you consider holy that you turn to over and over and over again? There are so many. That is not a short list. And let's see. The one I will say that I refer back to a lot is called Ancestor Medicine. It's a great book, especially if you're trying to explore what it means to have your ancestors present in your life as guides. They explore Mm -hmm. all of the things that you have to think about. Like they're your biological ancestors, but they're also spiritual ancestors, which is something that I recently uh, preached about with the CLF. And they're also what we call like non-family. So they're people that aren't connected to you at all, but there's something about them. They're also mythical ancestors, right? Like people who view Greek gods or goddesses and view them as ancestors, right? So that book is one that I absolutely love. And then I'll say one more. I love a book called Boundaries by Pixie Lighthorse. That is one I go back to over and over again, especially because my work in community care, I feel like is very much tied to work in boundaries and helping people to understand boundaries. And so I have a blog where I just talk about what it means to like be boundaried and important things about boundaries. See, Lighthorse, she wrote another one that I also want to recommend, Gold Mining the Shadows. That's the yes. one I go back along with boundaries and protection. Yes. Uh, They're incredibly connected. I will say another one that helped me formulate the wording around my spiritual practices, and it's called Jambalaya. That one is really great. It's it's uh, magical, personal charms, and practical mm-hmm. rituals. Mm-hmm. And Teshi is the name. And that one is really great just to see someone else's practice and figuring out what works for me and how I can adapt things that feel good for me and my spirit and align with my view- values of liberation and love. Yeah, I think those are ones that I go back to over and over and over again. Thank you. I was Googling when you were talking to find the ancestral book. Is it Ancestral Medicine Rituals for Personal and Family Healing by Daniel Ford? Is that the right one? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. There are two books that were given to me in 1992 that I still go back to. They're both Zen Buddhist. And one is called That Which You Are Seeking Is Causing You to Seek. 
And the other one is the key and the name of the key is willingness. And those books I've gone back to the way I think a lot of people go back to their holy texts. I call them going back to basics. Literally when I first picked them up and it was like, suffering is optional. And I'm like, fuck you. And I didn't, I was like hating the Buddha. I'm like, this is all bullshit. And it took me a good 20 years of, because then I would take a little nugget that made sense, treading lightly and slowly. But then now I'm, I'm going to be 53 and a little over a couple of weeks. And I now understand way more what suffering is optional means. Like that pain, everybody experiences pain. How I continue to re-traumatize myself or live with that pain or not work with through that pain is the suffering that I've given myself the charge to move through, especially as a faith leader. And I'm a trained therapist. I don't work in therapy anymore, but I engage in pastoral care and I take my work as a faith leader. I embody it. And so now I understand those books and they land much more. I understand them way more than I did when I first picked them up 30 years ago. Yeah. And Pixie Lighthorse, you and I were talking as I found gold mining the shadows and then you and I were talking and you turned me on to boundaries and protection. So now I've recommended that book to everybody. It is really, really good. Is there anything we haven't brought up to Karen that you were hoping we would in this time together? I don't think so. I think this has been really good for me in thinking about and talking about some of the fears we have around what it means to move through these kind of spaces in, with the intention of creating a spiritual practice. I will say that just a little promo. So right now I'm taking a little bit of a holiday break. And so starting in the new year, I'll have space to offer workshops and retreats. But if you are interested in engaging in conversation, reading about boundaries, I have a blog. It's called Holy Limits and Hallelujahs, and it's on Substack. And it's just me talking about how I feel and what I've seen and witnessed in religious professionals and like boundary setting. So far, I've heard it is super helpful. So I hope to keep that going. You are such a gift to the world, Karen. I don't even remember when we first met. I just know it was like love at first sight kind of thing. Thank you, Karen, for coming on and sharing with us your great wisdom and your wonderful smile that just sort of reminds us all to be happy. Even when shit's on fire, we can still, there's still joy in the world. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. I have like four hours worth of stuff that we can talk about with you can, but we've got four minutes. So I will say I have had the distinct pleasure of actually getting to experience some of the embodied worship that Jacaren uh, has helped put together. And it was so moving and so whole and it, it started every day for my Susie last summer there was morning worship every day and it just fed my entire being i just remember the joy that like to karen had us ripping pieces of cloth to get out anger and to get it out of us and this lovely little Unitarian universalist in this worshiping community are like give me the cloth <laughs> And just like, it was this, this like catharsis moment for this entire community, like rending these pieces of cloth and reveling in that sound that cloth makes when you tear it. And I'll never forget these mild-mannered UUs being given permission to just let it out in that way. And it was such a gift. Thank you.
That is a beautiful place to end. What a gift, Ja'Karen, you are in all our lives. And thank you for saying yes. yes to the call of ministry and faith leadership. I'm so grateful to know you and to call you friend. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for being here today as our guest. Thank you. thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to this ministry. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit clfuu.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, to rate it, and to review it so that others can find us. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.